Who do you want to be numbered with? Are you a slave to image? Does this matter more to you than what Jesus thinks of you? How important is it that people know that you love Christ? Are you willing to lose stuff, status, and possibly even friends for Christ? And I ask you this because I think a lot of times we're willing to suffer reproach for what political party we're part of, what special club we're part of, but when it comes to suffering reproach for our relationship with Jesus, we're unwilling. Do you love Jesus? And is that more important to you than what your friends or neighbors think about? The Apostle Paul tells us that we are to be careful how we live. Not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. We are not to be unwise, but we are to understand what the will of the Lord is. Welcome to The Redeeming Factor with Pastor Tony Fleach, the radio ministry of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Overland Park, Kansas. This week on The Redeeming Factor, Pastor Tony Fleach brings to us a message entitled, The Fruit of Faith, the Mosaic Era. There are many things that go into producing good fruit. The soil must have the right nutrients. The plants must have the proper amount of water and sunlight. Well, are we any different when it comes to the fruit of our faith? The scripture text for today's broadcast is from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 31. Here once again is Pastor Tony Felich with today's edition of The Redeeming Factor. We've entitled, The Fruit of Faith, the Mosaic Era. Fear is something I think all of us can relate to, and fear is not all bad. Uh, We should be afraid of running across a busy intersection or highway. We should be afraid of getting too close to the ledge. God gives us a certain sense uh, of dread about things that might lead to the end of our lives. That's not bad, but it's fear on a different scale that God answers with faith. When we take counsels of our fears instead of of the faith God's given us, we live defeated lives, lives that are largely, largely dishonoring to God. So I want to look at this passage in two ways. One, the big picture is this way in which God's gift of faith dispels fear in the lives of his people. and some pretty major figures. That's really the big picture that we'll see as we remember the little instances that are spoken of here. But also, on the smaller level, the more particular level, I'm asking you to consider how these big ideas apply to your daily life. Just the little particulars of everyday living and choices you make. I'll try to help us in that endeavor, but I challenge you to consider the text in its big meaning, but also in the particular ways in which we can see God's work in our life through the gift of faith. First, let's consider how the time of Moses, or the Mosaic era, illustrates God's gift of faith to spelling our fears in the form of fruit. First, we see the fruit of faith as Moses' parents hid him at great risk. Look at verse 23 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, particularly, beautiful here doesn't mean cute and cuddly. That may have been so. But it means special, good, proper, not ordinary, appointed for something. So they understood that there was a special mission for their child, Moses. So by faith, they hid him. Now, please notice that they... It's not the gift of faith that caused them to put the baby in the basket. Because as far as I'm concerned, that would have taken great, great faith. And indeed, it may have. That's not to say that it didn't. But really, where the faith uh, shows its fruit is their decision to not throw their child into the Nile River, but rather hide that child for three months. Now, I want you to consider what the king's edict was. Exodus 1, verse 22 reveals, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, so not just his, his soldiers, all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So he has put everybody in his kingdom on alert to look for babies being born to the Hebrews. Now they lived a somewhat 
integrated existence. It's not like the form of American slavery that we saw so wickedly displayed in our country's history, nor is it really like indentured servitude you see in Greece. It was kind of like this, there are the Hebrews, and uh, we had a history that was united with them somehow, but now they're essentially our workers. The problem was, unbeknownst to them, God had given them prolific uh, multiplication. More and more were being born, and it would not be uncommon for Hebrew women to have 15 children in their lifetime. And so, the Pharaoh sees this rising threat and decides that he is going to put an end to it by having all the baby boys that are now born thrown into the Nile River or be killed. So all his people are on the lookout. It would have taken great courage to hide your baby for three months. Great faith it took, the fruit of faith, for them to hide the baby for three months before deciding how it is that they would proceed with protecting and preserving the baby's life because they recognize God's special hand upon this child. They recognize the sin of killing a baby. They devised a way to protect him for three months. Not for their own good, because it wasn't ultimately for their own good. They could have paid dearly for this. But because God's glory was more important. I would like to suggest the big picture here, obviously, is that they saw God's special hand upon their child and the need to devise and be wise as to how they would protect the child from sin, which it would have been to kill that baby. So they were wise in doing so. I would ask us on a smaller level to consider how we are wise with our own children. I would suggest to you that no one is suggesting we throw our children into the Nile. I would say that the common culture and the basic spirit of the age does have many ways in which we can, maybe unbeknownst to us, throw our children into the Nile. Whether it's pluralism that teaches our children that it's not okay to think one way is the only way, that all lifestyles are okay, all ways of thinking are okay, except everyone. And they get this whether it be from the schools or from the internet or from the university. But beware that ultimately the culture seeks to throw our children into the Nile. To think any less, to think of some kind of utopia, you are just simply fooling yourself because that is the spirit of the age. Brothers and sisters, we must be wise with how we relate with our children and parent them. I am not in any way suggesting to shelter them completely and separate them and pull them out. How could we ever be transformers of the world? How could we ever have our children be Moses? to transform society if we did this. But to be unwise and to ignore and just act like the culture in its way, what everyone else is doing is wise, is very, very foolhardy. We've got to beware and be open and transparent with our children, have an ongoing dialogue with them. You know, Moses' parents did not try to hide him forever. Eventually, they had to let him go in order that he would do his work. And interestingly, in that episode, they were able to, by God's grace, stay connected with Moses to the point where his mother actually ended up nursing him. They were wise. They were wise as serpents, yet gentle as doves in how they integrated their children, their child's life in the world that he was going to be part of and going to influence. So let us recognize that the culture, while we are supposed to engage it to transform it, fundamentally, as it's opposed to God, seeks to destroy our children. So be aware of this. The fruit of faith gives us wisdom as we deal with our children. We see it in a big way with Moses' parents and how they dealt with uh, bringing up their son and what they did with him. And I hope we apply a similar fruit in our own lives. But look also at verse 24, down to verse 26. We see Moses keeping his Christian, and I did say Christian, identity in the midst of great opposition. Verse 24 says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So Moses grew up as an Egyptian. 
Even though people knew he was a Hebrew, he was raised by Pharaoh's daughter, so he had a status. He lived in royalty. He had the pleasures that that royalty brought him. Yet at age 40, not a youthful whim, at age 40, he renounced it when he recognized that he ought to be identified with the people of God. Acts 7, verse 23 and verse 24 says, When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. So Moses recognized at age 40, living the high life, living a life of royalty and luxury, sees his people, but more importantly, sees the people of God, whom he is one, and recognizes that it's more important to give up uh, the fleeting pleasures of sin that come from his position and be numbered with God's people than to be numbered among those who were committing the sins, committing the different forms of idolatry and all the things that went into being in Pharaoh's house. He saw it as more important for the glory, particularly of Christ. Now, I want you to notice something, verse 25 and verse 26. Choosing rather than to be mistreated with the people of God, so he wants to be identified with the people of God, And verse 26 says what that means, the reproach of Christ. So being identified with the people of God is equated with the reproach of Christ. And this is an important truth for us to grasp, that being identified with the people of God is like being identified with Jesus. It's not just some club we're part of. It's not a a Bible study group or some other kind of uh, a well-meaning and well-intentioned and profitable group. It's the church. It's the people of God, the people of God for whom God has his hand upon and that he's building and the gates of hell will not prevail over. To be identified with the people of God is equated with being in Christ. So being baptized in the community is of utmost importance because we're the community that's identified with God. Moses recognized this and thought it was more important to be identified with the people of God who were in the slop of the mud to build whatever they were building rather than live the life of luxury. He gave up his personal pleasures because of Christ. And it says that he considered the reproach of Christ. What I mean by that is he understood Messiah. He understood as he wrote Genesis 3.15 that there would be a person who would come to undo the work of Satan. I believe that Moses understood when he wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, later than this episode, but still wrote it, understood Christologically that one would come to save him. And the reproach of Christ, the reproach of the one who would save him, was far more important to him than being identified with the Egyptians. He kept his identity in the midst of great opposition because, frankly, Jesus is worth it. Brothers and sisters, more particularly, who do you want to be numbered with? Are you a slave to image? What people think? Does this matter more to you than what Jesus thinks of you? How important is it that people know that you love Christ? Are you willing to lose stuff, status, and possibly even friends for Christ? And I ask you this because I think a lot of times we're willing to suffer reproach for what political party we're part of, what special club we're part of. But when it comes to suffering reproach for our relationship with Jesus, we're unwilling. And I'm not talking about all those other affiliations. I mean, do you love Jesus? And is that more important to you than what your friends or neighbors think about it? Ultimately, I really believe, and I'm burdened by this, the modern church, when I look at the modern church today, is largely avoiding, to the best of its ability, the reproach of Christ. Whatever we can do to make the larger culture accept us. You know, we'll preach the Bible, but just only enough of it so we don't get anyone upset. The reproach of Christ is so far out of the vocabulary or thinking of most people in the modern church. We can all get along here. We can do our thing and the, the, the world can do its thing. It's really a sad, sad dilemma that we are faced with today. 
how to reintroduce the reproach of Christ in the life of the church. We as the modern church have to recognize that we have given in to some degree to comfort and ease and acceptance and have just done away with the reproach of Christ. We want to be accepted by the mainstream, as it were, and so have completely lost our saltiness. There are more fruits, though, that show themselves in the lives of those who lived in Moses' time. Verse 27, which was a confusing passage to me when I first began to study it. How is the fruit of faith evidenced here? But look, Moses fleeing to Egypt actually is a fruit of faith. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured us, seeing him who is invisible. I couldn't understand how fleeing, and it says left in the text, but if you look at Exodus 2.15, it says, when Pharaoh had heard of it, that is Moses killing uh, this Egyptian who was abusing a Hebrew, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. So it says he fled. When he left, he ran. I thought, how is that possibly a fruit of faith? Well, when you start to analyze Moses' situation, he was in the house of royalty. He had done a terrible thing in murdering this Egyptian servant. However, you have to say that if Moses would have gone back to Pharaoh and begged him for his life, he would have given it to him. Part of that would be renouncing uh, what he had done in renouncing his identity with the Hebrews. But certainly he could have definitely saved his life if he just begged Pharaoh. What a display of Pharaoh's sovereignty that would have been to have Moses come and beg for his life. But instead, by faith, Moses fled, knowing that the Pharaoh wanted to kill him, and that furthermore, he could send someone after him wherever he fled. And furthermore, he didn't know where he was going. He didn't know the Midianites before this. He didn't know what his future was. But the gift of faith in him led him to leave instead of go beg for mercy. Instead of selling out against God's people, he decided to go flee. And it just the right time God spoke to him. Now, whether he knew that was coming or not is really irrelevant. The fact is, he avoided begging for mercy and left and waited upon God. Because I think Moses understood, as Matthew 10, 28 says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. He compared the reproach of Christ, the deserts of abandoning God with this person, Pharaoh, who was the most a powerful man on earth at that time, and said, I will go the way of my God. The fear of man reveals in us a small God. Who is it that you are fearful of? What is it that you are fearful of? Is it bigger and better than God? Certainly not. Whatever it is, whatever person you fear, whatever situation you fear, it is not bigger than God. Don't let the fear of a person or a thing stop you from doing God's will. This is certainly one of the great fruits of faith. Also, notice verse 28. Moses keeping the Passover is suggested or given to us as a fruit of faith. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. The Passover in its entirety is described in Exodus chapter 12. It's the last of the plagues before Israel was freed from Egypt. And the issue here is Moses recognizing the seriousness of obeying God. He took God seriously when God said, make sure you apply the blood of the land to the doorpost so that the household might be saved. He didn't second guess it. He didn't do a little bit of the instructions. He recognized by faith that God was serious. He saw the other plagues. He recognized who God was. And he took his instructions for worship very seriously. He didn't play around with them. Didn't view them as optional. Did them. By faith, he did this. Certainly it didn't look popular. 
Who would take a valuable animal that provided fabric, milk, meat, and slaughter the animal? Why would someone do this, especially as slaves who own very little? Those who were given special instructions by God, it would reveal a picture of how they would ultimately be saved by the Messiah. Still, it took faith to do something that seemed unreasonable to the onlooker and to follow God's ways, to follow God's standards and worship. And I think more particularly, that may be the big picture, but more particularly, God is serious, my brothers and sisters, when he instructs us concerning worship. We ought to be serious about this endeavor. I think there's a wide gamut of ways in which we can biblically worship. Please understand that. But the right question to ask is, God, what pleases you? Not, what do seekers think about it? Not, what speaks to me? Or, what my reaction is? Or, that doesn't speak to me, I hear. Or, I didn't get much out of that. That's not a valid question about worship. It's, did God get something out of this? And this is the question that... Uh, Moses certainly had to consider, it's not what is reasonable on the outward, it's what God prescribes and I'm going to do it. And he's going to uphold us in the midst of it. He's going to uphold, and he did uphold them in the midst of it. Don't mess with God's instructions. Don't follow culture, follow God's commands. We are to be the shapers of culture, not the ones shaped by it. Verse 29 gives us further fruit. The Israelites left Egypt via the Red Sea. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as if on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Now, yes, if you're an Israelite, the plagues were obvious. They're horrific. They saw what happened. So they left Egypt on the basis of seeing God's display for sure. But still, there was a huge barrier that they all knew full well, the Red Sea. They had to cross the Red Sea. How would that happen? Well, by faith, God moved them to and through the Red Sea. The greatest army in the world was in pursuit of them, and they're approaching the Red Sea. Now, keep in mind, not only is it the greatest army, they're mad. They're really mad. They've lost their sons. They're going with an added extra amount of vengeance after them. And they have them at the back in the sea at the front, and God moves them towards the sea, and we know the squabbling that went on before the sea opened and after it closed and so forth, but at its essence, God, by faith, moved them, two million people in this direction, opened the sea up, and as they're walking through, literally, it's closing behind them. Now, if you're the person that's always late, that's not a good time to be the only always one's late. As you're looking back and you're seeing the Egyptian, the most powerful, the fastest of the ones on the chariot, right at you, and you watch the sea close up behind taking out the Egyptians. If that's not a picture of corporate election, I don't know what is. In other words, it has nothing whatsoever to do with something they mustered up. It's so clearly the gift of God to these people. And I hope we realize when we see this incident that God has his hand upon the church for all its foibles. And I think all of us here know our own foibles. And it's not a legitimate argument to say, I'm not part of the church or I'm not going to join a church because they're all messed up. Well, they'll only be more messed up if you join it. The point being is that it's God's people. He's put his corporate hand of election upon them. And it's through the church that the gates of hell will not prevail. It's the proclamation of Christ. It's the means of grace, all pointing to Christ. It's the main way people come to know Christ. No one anywhere ever comes to Christ apart from the hand of the church reaching out to them. So God's hand upon his people is obvious when he saves these people literally within feet of losing their lives. And today, when he still has his hand upon us, the church. 
Praise God also, though, for the small miracles that compose your life. You know, we can think of these big events, this big hand of God upon the church, but also think of the small miracles that are part of your life. I don't know if you would even call them technically miracles. Maybe it's acts of God's providence. But see those as evidences of God's love for you. Little ways in which He makes things happen. When He providentially shapes events, it shows His loving hand upon you. Think of those things, how they compose your life, how they are woven together like a beautiful tapestry that will, in heaven, be all the more reason why we will glorify Him. I often wonder how many truly close calls we have all had. But God, in His providence, keeps us, preserves us, and will praise Him for it for eternity when we see His glory revealed. The Israelites left Egypt via the Red Sea. That's a fruit of faith when all things are considered. Verse 30, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. First you are saved from the mightiest army in the world. Now you come to probably the most fortified city in antiquity, Jericho. So you're heading out of the frying pan and into the fire is the first place that you have to take in order to get the land. Joshua leads them, and they are given very unorthodox instructions to circle the city seven times, to yell, shout, play instruments, all the things that make no military sense. I mean, they could have besieged the city. They could have stopped commerce from happening and eventually sanctioned them out if they wanted to. But instead, God gives unique instructions in how they will take this fortified city that no doubt their legend had gone all around the land. Don't attack Jericho. It's a bloodbath. It's worthless. You can never do anything to get through this wall. And here come the Israelites, and they don't do it with weapons at first. They do it with weird instructions from God. The fruit of faith works in a way which they had come that far and seen what God has done. They follow God's plans and His instructions by faith, not by common sense altogether, not by what would be common military intelligence, but rather by God's particular instructions to them. And they serve God's glory as they serve His particular plan. God's Word is the standard of right and wrong, not the times. Not all the different ways in which I'm sure military advisors told Joshua we should take it from this side or we should do this side. Better yet, let's go around it and get to the next city. Instead, following God's commands by faith, not something they could have done themselves, they followed this amazing plan, clearly showing, demonstrating, reminding us that it was a fruit of faith that moved people to walk around a city seven times and yell. It's never been copied since, has it? Finally, Rahab. The example of Rahab and faith working in her life to do the right thing, even at the risk of being tried for treason. Verse 31, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Bottom line with Rahab, she recognized God's people. She understood that she was numbered on the wrong side and was willing to repent of that by, by being loyal to God's side. Now, if you think of someone like Rahab, there's hope for all of us. She did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She would have been killed for sure if her treason had been found out. Common to all of these people is the fear of man and its potential to stop them from doing what they should have done. But the fruit of faith was to not take counsel of their fears, but counsel of God's gift of faith instead. And Rahab is no different. And I love Rahab as an example, because all these other people, Joshua and Moses, the people of Israel, they're spiritual people, right? They're the ones God cares about. But Rahab the prostitute? No, you see, brothers and sisters, this is the picture of grace. I don't care where you've been, what you've done. God can use you in the plan of redemption, and he always picks these kind of people. 
So please don't be here and say, God could not, I hear what you're saying, but God could not use me because you have no idea what's in my past. Well, maybe it's not Rahab the prostitute. Maybe it's so-and-so the murderer. Maybe it's so-and-so the hater. Maybe it's so-and-so the liar. Whatever your nickname should be, God can redeem you and he could use you to further his glory. He's in the business of this. This is what he does. He picks the last person you would think. He is no respecter of persons the way we are. He takes the broken. He takes those who are battered, those who have not been faithful, and he makes them faithful. That's the gift of God's grace working itself out. The gift of God's faith. And the fruit of it is revealed in chapter 11. Rahab caps off Moses' era and the people who lived in that time. But you know what's so wonderful about this is that the same God is giving the same gift of faith today. The same gift you have today. Blessings come from obedience in the simplest ways, from doing what's right, from having a heavenly vision, a vision that sees God's rule and reign is more important than what the culture dictates or what's around. And the the belief that as we live that way, God will use the church in in a way that affects the rest of the world. It's not to be isolationist. It's that when we do these things, it has an effect that ripples out from beyond these walls so that God's glory might be known as we reign together with Christ under his work of subduing people, men, women, children to himself. A person's background doesn't disqualify him. Where you've been, where you think you're going... God can interrupt at any time as he has done throughout the history of redemption, save people, save more people, and redeem the world for his son. I hope that we see ourselves as having reached out for the baton that has been handed to us by those who have come before us who are in Christ. As we allow God to direct our lives, he generates the fruit and we experience the benefits of the harvest. To receive an audio copy of today's broadcast, call or write and ask for the message entitled, The Fruit of Faith, The Mosaic Era. Our mailing address, The Redeeming Factor, 9333 West 159th Street, Overland Park, Kansas, 66221. You may reach us by phone at 913-685-2322. That's 913-685-2322. The Redeeming Factor is the radio ministry of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, a member of the Presbyterian Church in America. Tony Felice is our senior pastor. You're invited to join us for worship Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11. Sunday school for all ages takes place at 10 a.m. and our Sunday evening gathering begins at 6. The church is located at 9333 West 159th Street between Antioch and Schweitzer. The mission of Redeemer Presbyterian Church is to mature as a community of Christians who love to worship their God study His Word, and proclaim His Gospel to the world. As God's redeemed people, we share our joy in Christ with one another. We offer a variety of ministry opportunities, including home fellowship Bible studies for men and women, evangelism outreach, and family-based youth ministry, equipping young people to grow toward mature Christian adulthood. Redeemer Presbyterian Church is also the home of Westminster Academy, offering a high-quality, biblically-based education program for grades K-8. through You can learn more about the church and the school at our website. You'll find us online at redeemer-pca.org. And once again, for a free copy of today's program, request the message entitled, The Fruit of Faith, The Mosaic Era. Our mailing address, The Redeeming Factor, 9333 West 159th Street, Overland Park, Kansas, 66221. 
The phone number is 913-685-2322. You may also hear today's message at our Real Audio website at accradio.com. Thank you for taking the time to join us for today's broadcast. And we invite you to be with us again next time as we continue to study God's Word and proclaim His gospel to the world on The Redeeming Factor.